0: This is Mormon Awakenings. My name's Jack Nanique. I hope you find something interesting here today. Welcome back. I want to start with a story that I heard the other day. It's a story of a stake president who, on his way to a very important church meeting, had a massive head-on collision with a semi-truck and died instantly. Now... Let me just back up for a second. This is not a real story about a, a real stake president. So for anyone getting too excited right now, it's just illustrative. Okay. Okay. So this stake president has a head-on collision with a semi-truck and then he dies instantly and he goes up to heaven and there at the gates of the celestial kingdom is a sentinel holding a clipboard. The stake president's confused at first. He's, not quite sure what had happened. Then he realizes he's dead. And then he sees that the celestial kingdom's right there. And so he says to the Sentinel, after collecting himself, he says, well, I'm, I guess I'm here now. And it was a bit of a surprise, but am I good? To, can I go in now? Am I good to go? And the Sentinel looks up from his clipboard and looks at the stake president and says, yeah, you can go right in. As long as you have 100 points. 100 100 points. Well, this kind of confuses Sick President. He had been active in the gospel his entire life. He had never heard of the 100 point proviso. But you know, he could see that this sentinel here had a clipboard and a pencil and was there to tally up his points. So he started thinking of all the things in his life that he thought would get him some points. So he said, well, when I was a, I was a boy, I was active in the Aaronic priesthood. I was a deacon and a teacher. And then I was first assistant when I was a, East. I was an Eagle Scout. Then I served a mission. You know, I never touched alcohol. I never had a cigarette. And then he said, when I got home from my mission, I got married in the temple. The Sentinel's listening and take tallying all this up. And then the Sentinel looks up and says, oh, that's great. You've got six points so far. So this sort of, you know, six points only this kind of alarm, the stake presence. So then he really started data dumping all the things in his life that would warrant points You know, he said all of his children were born in the covenant. He paid a full tithe. He served in Sunday school presidencies. Then he was in a bishopric. Then he was made bishop himself. He had five children. Two of the boys went on missions. One of the girls did. They were all married in the temple. All of their kids were born in the covenant, all of his grandkids. So he had established a large and growing eternal family, established a family culture, passed on a legacy In his church service, he had borne much testimony throughout his stake. He fasted every month. He admonished and cajoled. He had been on a high council. Then he was in a stake presidency for several years. Finally, he was made the stake president himself. And during all this time, he had attended the temple regularly, lent a helping hand at the various ward moves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when he had finished... Telling all this, the sentinel looked up from his clipboard and said, well, now you're at 17 points. And, I mean, the stake president was flabbergasted. What do you have to do to get 100 points? It's just brutal. Who can qualify for the celestial kingdom, he thought. And slack-jawed, he kind of turned around and tried to collect himself. Well, he thought about his next moves. And as he did, he noticed this guy, Larry, coming up around a far... Cloud Bank, and he knew Larry. Larry was in his ward. He didn't know him well, but he had known him for years, and Larry was a nice enough guy, sure, but Larry wasn't very active in the church. I guess he came sometimes, but his wife never did. In fact, he wasn't even sure his wife was a member. One of his kids came, but the other three didn't. I mean, one of his daughters had a tattoo, didn't she? I guess Larry was fine professionally. I mean, he had a house and all and managed to help his kids go to college, but, you know, nothing spectacular. He was an okay guy, but... And Larry got closer and closer to the stake president and the sentinel. And as he approached the stake president, he nodded to the stake president and said, hello, stake president. And the stake president said, hello, Larry. And then Larry nodded at the sentinel. And the sentinel nodded back. And then Larry just walked right in, right into the celestial kingdom. Well, the stake president couldn't believe it. And he had had enough. And he turned to the sentinel and in a demanding voice said, are you telling me Larry has a 100 points and I don't? And Sentinel just kind of chuckled and said, oh, no, Larry doesn't have a 100 points. He just doesn't play this game. You may have heard this joke before. The friend of mine that told me this joke is not LDS. And the way he told it, it wasn't a stake president. It was just a local minister. And Larry was just some guy in his congregation. But the principle was the same. You know, the minister was all consumed with getting his points. And then some guy in his congregation just saunters right into heaven. And that guy wasn't even playing the game. And this story speaks to us because we know people like the minister or the stake president who are so concerned with getting their points, so concerned with earning their way, almost as if they're driven by fear of not making it to the celestial kingdom or to heaven. And the fear not only drives them to seek to accumulate points, but it drives the formation of other things in their lives like condescension, self-righteousness, arrogance, all the traps of ego that fear builds in all of us. And how horrifying it must be to them when the Larry's of the world just saunter right in to, to the celestial kingdom and aren't even playing the same game And that creates some confusion and maybe even some anger from those obsessed with their point totals, doesn't it? And then there's something about the Larry character that really appeals to us too, doesn't it? There's something that speaks to us. Maybe all this anxiety and fretting that we feel from time to time inside about what we're not doing right or maybe about what we are doing wrong. Well, maybe that's not all that important at the end of the day. Maybe there's something bigger for us to worry about. Maybe God and his representatives at the gates of the celestial kingdom are actually a little more merciful than we've been taught. Boy, we sure hope so. So we like this idea of Larry just sauntering past the stake president, past the sentinel, right in. But all this leaves unanswered one very important question. If Larry wasn't playing the game, then what exactly was he doing? How did he get to the state where he could just saunter right in? He didn't even stop to ask the sentinel whether he could go in. He just went in. Now, I know I'm getting hysterical that that it's a joke. Nonetheless, I think that question is a good one, and that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to do that by talking about two churches and two brothers and a common destination for all at the gates of the celestial kingdom. The first of these two brothers is someone I've talked about before, my own father. My father was a convert to Mormonism. He grew up in a church called the Disciples of Christ, which was founded by a man named Alexander Campbell. For those familiar with church history, you may know who Alexander Campbell is. He was the one who founded the Campbellite Church in Ohio. Well, Joseph Smith and the Mormons showed up in Ohio shortly after Alexander Campbell had founded his church. And much to Alexander Campbell's chagrin, about half the congregants in his own church got up en masse and joined the Mormon church. And one of those congregants was a guy named Sidney Rigdon, who was an assistant preacher to Alexander Campbell. Well, those who stayed with Alexander Campbell continued on as a church. And they eventually morphed into the the disciples of Christ. And that was the church my father grew up in. Very similar in form and in doctrine to the LDS church. The Campbellites taught the five-finger gospel. Faith, repentance, baptism, remission of sins, and receiving the Holy Spirit. Sounds a lot like our first article of faith, doesn't it? In fact, Alexander Campbell accused Joseph Smith of plagiarizing many of the doctrines of early Mormonism from his writings, from Campbellism. And historians have pointed to Sidney Rigdon as the conduit, as someone who took Campbellite principles and then grafted them into early Mormonism. Campbellites believe in baptism by immersion. They wear the white clothes. They have the same setup. If you see Campbellite tracks, you'll see photographs of people getting baptized, and it looks like a Mormon baptism. Some guy with his arm to the square, holding onto the arms of someone else who's about to be baptized, both dressed in white in water, about to be immersed. The Campbellites believe in temperance, they believe in moral purity. alexander 's goal was similar to that to that of Joseph Smith, united all uniting all Christians under one roof. So this was the church my father grew up in, and my grandfather, my father 's father, was a lay minister in that church. The ministry in the Campbellite Church was a lay ministry, like the Mormons. So my grandfather taught school during the week and was a lay minister on Sundays. Well, it sounds a lot like our bishops, doesn't it? So when my father met my mother, who was the descendant of great pioneer stock, and when she informed him that she would not be marrying anyone who is not a Mormon, and then when he considered Mormonism in response, to that ultimatum, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. It wasn't that big of a transition for him. Familiar doctrines, familiar principles, you know, the the baptismal ceremony was very, It's you know, I just don't think it was that big of a jump for him to make. So prior to them getting married, he joined. They were married in the temple, and then he was faithful in the Mormon church the rest of his life. He served, he paid tithing, he kept the word of wisdom, he was in bishoprics, he was on a high council, he was proud when his kids went on missions, he thought it was a good place, he thought it was the right place for him. He was grateful for the structure, for the discipline, for all the good things that go on inside the Mormon church. He did his home teaching, he was grateful for the community and the support. It was his path. He knew. He never doubted it. He never strayed. Nonetheless, I saw him at the pulpit declaring firm testimony about the church being the one and only true church and pounding the pulpit. I heard him do that exactly zero times. That's not to say he didn't believe that. I don't know if he did or not. He just never talked that way about the church. And I think the reason he never talked that way about the church is it just didn't matter to him. It was too abstract and all comprehensive for him to to worry about. His questions were more basic, like, is this a good thing to do? Does this take us to a good place? Are we closer to God, better people, more charitable people walking this path? Is this the path God wants me on for my development, for my growth, for my family's growth? My father was not someone hung up on checklists and accumulating points. He did not live in fear that he was not going to make it somehow. His in-laws, on the other hand, those who had demanded he conform to their way of life, to their traditions, to their history, they were full of certitude, were unyielding, and were difficult people indeed. All in the name of doing what's right, mind you, but difficult and my father begrudged them this exactly zero times. That's not to say he was perfect and he never got a little annoyed. I'm sure he did, but he, but it didn't weigh him down beyond the moment. He got over it and he kind of was able to keep himself in balance. He had a perspective and an inner peace that came from a place way deeper, way more profound than any superficial reading of Mormon doctrine would even lead us to believe was possible. And one of the great acts of faith that one can make, he had exchanged his need for certitude, for being right with the peace and assurance that comes with letting go. A peace and assurance that resides in the moment, in the now. Well, I think my father, liked the Larry character in The Joke, just kind of sauntered right in because he played an entirely different game. Well, the second brother, obviously, is my father's younger brother, who's two years younger than he was, grew up in the same church that my father grew up with, obviously. Had the same lay minister, school teacher father that my own father had. Except when my father's brother fell in love it was not with a mormon girl it was with a girl whose parents had abandoned religion entirely my uncle's wife my aunt her mother was jewish and her father was christian and both parents disowned them when they got married so they had no religion in the house hence my uncle's wife my aunt was not religious at all terrific person kind no nonsense but not religious and so when they got married, they didn't really have religion. They went to the congregational church in their town from time to time. They gave their, give their kids the basics, but these were not religious people, really good people, wonderful people, but not overtly religious. Well, my uncle passed away a couple of years ago, and his daughter, my cousin, came to my house to share a story with me. She said near the end of her father's life, he had really declined rapidly. He had the early stages of Alzheimer's and had really gone downhill fast to where he really didn't know what was going on. He he could recognize people, but he just really wasn't very lucid. Well, one day, my cousin and my aunt, who were taking care of him, started to get the feeling that the end was near. So they decided to take him on a drive to the lake where my cousin and her husband had a lake house one last time. It's a place my uncle loved. It was a beautiful place. It was also fall, and they thought, let's do this. We don't know how many more opportunities we're going to have. Let's take Dad on this trip. So they did. They got him out of his hospital bed. They put him in the car, and they drove him to the lake. And they had a wonderful time, and she said her father just loved it. Kind of came alive a little bit. Seemed to notice and really appreciate the beauty well, at the end of that day, they came home and they put him back into the hospital bed that they had rented and put in the living room of his house in order to take care of him. And my cousin just felt that this might be it. This might be the end. And she remembered something one of the nurses had told her during an earlier stay at the hospital. And the nurse had said, you know, people sometimes near the end of their lives hold on to this world because they're worried about their children or their spouse. They're worried about the people they're leaving behind and they'll hold on longer than they really should. Well, this came into my cousin's mind as she sat with her father, my uncle, after this day of driving around the lake. And as she was sitting there, she said he he kind of came to life again. He sat up and he was suddenly very lucid and he looked at her and he greeted her and then he he seemed to see something beyond her. And she turned around to look and she said, Dad, what are you looking at? She said, do you see anybody? And he said, yes. I see my parents, I see my sister and my brother, who's my father, the members of his family who had passed on. My cousin said to my uncle, well, Dad, you should go to him. And he looked at her and she said, Dad, we're going to be fine here. We're going to be just fine. Go. Once he was assured that those he was leaving behind would be fine, he was able to move forward to join those on the other side waiting for him, including my father. Now, as my cousin's telling me this story, I'm, of course, just blubbering. And she just sat there angelic. She was not emotional. She was just beaming full of joy. And, you know, she's not a religious person, by the way. But she was just beaming. She was so happy, so full of light. She said, you know, I just wanted you to know this. I just think you needed to hear this. She had felt impressed to share this story with me. Well, I think about this story often. My father and my uncle and my cousin were not and are not playing the game of accumulating points. But they all found themselves at the gates to the celestial kingdom together. My father greeting his brother while my cousin looked on as he passed to the other side. And my cousin who witnessed this felt impressed to share it with me. So she's obviously playing a different game too. A much deeper, more profound, charitable game. And somehow she was aware of this without the trappings of religion. Now, it's hard to talk about these things and not sound like I'm bashing religion or bashing the tenets of the gospel or bashing the priesthood or bashing truth claims. And I'm not doing any of those things. I think structure and discipline and moral codes and commandments are good, critical things. But the intent and the motivation of our hearts is more critical. And if we're doing anything in any religion with the intent of accumulating points out of fear to get somewhere, we're missing the point because all of the aforementioned things are supposed to transform us and our motivations to make us submissive, humble, and full of love. And it doesn't matter what your outward performances are. If your inside is devoid of love, you miss the point. Your being and your state is not one in which you'll be comfortable just sauntering past the sentinels right into the celestial kingdom. And if you don't believe this, you ought to read Paul's epistle to the Romans. In which he talks all about the law. Where he says the law is not an end unto itself. And there are a lot of people who have no law who end up in a place much brighter more full of light than people who are living the law scrupulously. Well, how does that make any sense? That doesn't seem to make any sense. On one level, it doesn't make any sense. But then Paul goes on to talk about something else, and that something else is grace. We don't talk about grace a lot inside our community, and our understanding of grace is primarily as a gap filler. Do everything you can, accumulate as many points as you can, But if you're only at 17 points, well, grace will make up the difference and you'll get in. You know, we think of grace as, you know, if if you get a C on the test, well, you'll get an A at the end of the day. Or if your team finished in last place, you're going to get a trophy anyway. But that's not grace in my view. Grace is pure love and pure acceptance. And when you receive it from God, it's in its purest form. But it's something you can give to others, too. And I mentioned grace this way because maybe that's the game that Larry was playing. Maybe that's what transformed him as a person and enabled him to saunter right in. I certainly think that's what my father was doing vis-a-vis his in-laws and his new church. Exercising a lot of love and acceptance of how things were. It sure sounds like that's what my uncle did most of his life. That certainly was what my cousin was doing in coming over to my house and sharing the story of his miraculous passing. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in Romans when he says that there are a lot of people who don't even have the law who are in a better state than those who are living it scrupulously. He doesn't say the law is irrelevant or should be chucked or is a waste of time any more than I think we ought to chuck the gospel church structure, commandments, programs. But those things are signposts. Those things are pointing to something bigger, deeper, more profound. They're supposed to help us along the way as we transform and develop this inner quality of grace. And it seems that some people come to this earth already full of grace. And some of us learn it while we're on this earth. But in either case, I think, It doesn't develop inside us until we receive a good dose of it first. Whether we got that dose before we came here or whether we got it while we're here, I think it starts with someone else giving it to us. And my view is that it's God giving it to us. There's a beautiful painting by Carl Block that was discussed in the priesthood lesson I attended last Sunday. Some of you who are listening may have seen this painting as well. It's in the manual. It's Christ at the pool of Bethesda, leaning over an invalid. And this invalid had been camped by the pool of Bethesda for 30 years, unable to get into the pool. And the pool was supposed to have these magical qualities that would heal people. But in order to take advantage of these special healing properties, you had to get into the pool right after it was disturbed by bubbles or something coming up from the spring below. And the first person in would get healed and... You know, everyone else too late. The healing powers have been exhausted by that person. They need to wait until the next gurgling, whatever that is that disturbed the pool. So Jesus comes up, he sees this invalid and he says, Hey, why aren't you getting into the pool? And the invalid said, there's nobody who can put me in and everyone else is faster than I am. I can't get into the pool. And as a reader, you're thinking, well, Christ is going to pick him up and carry him to the front of the line and put him into the pool first. Next time it's disturbed. But that's not what happened. Christ just heals him and says, take up your bed and, and walk. Christ says, I'm just going to transform you. You don't even have to get into the pool. You don't even have to play by all these rules and all these customs and do all this supers. Just, just get up and walk and let's move forward. Interestingly enough, he does this on a Sabbath day. Heals this invalid and the invalid picks up his bed and starts walking home. And all the Pharisees and the scribes can do is say to the man, hey, you know, it's Sunday. It's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be carrying your bed around. That's against the rules. So here we see a group of people hung up on the idea of accumulating points, keeping score. And then we see someone else, the invalid, who knew he was broken, who knew he was failing at his objective of getting in the pool. But in this case, think of it of accumulating his own points. That wasn't happening for him. Yet through grace, pure love, pure acceptance, pure compassion, he was healed and was able to get up and walk and begin his own journey of grace and love. He could develop his own light and start playing a different game. Well, it's hard to truly appreciate the power of grace Until you go through a period of life where nothing seems to make any sense or you're trapped or you're stuck or you're an invalid, literally or figuratively, where you just cannot get to where you think you need to get. And if you're at that point and someone comes along and just loves you and accepts you, well, it changes you and it changes the game you're playing. There are so many people inside our community who are so quick to say with certitude what qualifies you for the celestial kingdom. It makes me wonder if they've ever experienced any grace themselves. And it's tempting for our community, as it is for all religious communities, to promote and advance those who are really good at accumulating points. It's a measurable heuristic after all. But if the New Testament has taught us anything, it's that focusing on accumulating points can lead an institution to very bizarre ends. Christ was crucified, after all, by the hierarchy that was offended by his miracles done on the Sabbath, who saw his claims of being the Son of God as blasphemous. People obsessed with doing things correctly. People who had not experienced grace had no need for grace. And therefore, we're unwilling or unable to exercise grace. I'm not saying that the law and the rules aren't important. They are. But they're not ends in and of themselves. Compliance to the law gets you nowhere in and of itself. It's supposed to prepare you to be able to receive and give grace. And if it's not doing that, you're just keeping score. We do not talk about grace in our community, and when we do, I think we give it short shrift. We talk about duty and obedience and obligations. We talk about not fulfilling our duties and obligations or breaking the commandments and not being obedient. We talk about repentance as a way to compensate for previous discretions. All of it presupposes that we are somehow in control of the process ourselves. And our own works will save the day or not. And we comfort ourselves by telling ourselves if we don't get enough points after all we've done, we've strove and worked and accumulated. And if if at the end of the day, we're five points short or 10 points short, well, you know, somebody's going to come up and give us five points. It's going to be okay. But it's all about getting to this place and buying our way in somehow. But I think our maker is concerned more about the transformation of our being, specifically transforming into a being of light and truth, and most importantly, grace and love, which is way more powerful at the end of the day than mere compliance. We as a people, however, spend so much time obsessing about being right and being right with certitude knowing the one true path, having the true and living gospel ourselves, telling everyone else how they ought to be walking their paths, keeping score, reminding other people it is the Sabbath after all. We forget the words of Paul when he says that there are a lot of people without the law who are in a better place than those who are keeping it scrupulously. We obsess that our steps of qualification, The programs, the ordinances, all these things that we send our people through are pointing to something bigger and beyond themselves. They're not ends in and of themselves, in my view. That sounds like heresy indeed until you look at the lineage of Christ himself. His ancestors were the Gentiles. They were the illegitimate, the adulterers, the sinners. The company he kept while he was on this earth was of the same ilk. Sinners, publicans, harlots. And what did all these people have in common? They had in common an incredible need for some grace, which again does not render the law irrelevant, but it sure does change our perspective vis-a-vis it. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please send me an email with your comments to mormonawakenings at com or visit me at Facebook at Jack Nanique or Mormon Awakenings. Until next time.